Welcome to Inside the Hive. This is Joe Hagan. I'm here with Emily Jane Fox. Emily, I'm very excited today. I've been eagerly anticipating this day. We're pioneering some new direction here at Inside the Hive. We're going to try something new. I think our listeners and Americans deserve the occasional reprieve from the onslaught of news. And this week we've got John Baptiste, the band leader from The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. Everybody kind of knows him by sight. He's like, you know, incredibly jovial and optimistic, and he's a preternaturally gifted musician, and he's a jazz guy. But uh, I decided to interview him because he's got so much going on. He just won a Golden Globe for his work on the Pixar movie Soul, and he's been nominated for two Grammys for two separate records that he's on, and he has a brand new record coming out on March 19th. And uh, I figured this is a good time to get to know him. And as it turns out, that was a great idea because like a lot of people, uh, he was really catalyzed and energized by what has happened in the last year politically, especially the Black Lives Matter movement, which he turns out he had a lot of participation in. And this new album he has coming out uh, was in part catalyzed by all of that. So we had this great conversation about his uh his life and times which are he's only he's only 34 years old he it's he's uh he's got a prodigy uh, like profile which on one level is annoying and on the other hand uh, it's you wouldn't couldn't ask for anything more because he's so gifted and he's gonna play a little piano for our listeners and it's cool i think you'll dig it what's cool about this interview is you obviously you know he is everywhere right now. He is working on the coolest stuff. He is being recognized in award show after award show. And he has had a lot to say about the world we are living in and where we want to see the world that we're living in. But the very cool, cool part of this is you're not just talking to him and hearing from him. You are listening to him play music as you guys talk. Right. He comes in and he explains bits and parts about his biography. And we have a whole segment where we geek out about Duke Ellington and Thelonious Monk who are big heroes of his, and he plays some of them on his piano. And we are also going to hear some clips from his new record. So you can hear what his new music sounds like, which is more like almost like a Stevie Wonder soul record. And uh, it's fabulous. And I think people are going to really dig it. And just as an aside, a funny thing that came up in our conversation, as you'll hear in a minute, you know, Radhika Jones, the editor of Vanity Fair magazine, I'm not sure how many people are aware of this, but her father was kind of a figure in the jazz world in the uh, 60s and 70s. He worked for the Newport uh, Jazz Festival, and he was the road manager for Duke Ellington. And uh, it turns out that John Batiste knows him, and there's a whole kind of fun wow. sequence in here where he, he geeks out on Vanity Fair. He loves Vanity Fair. Um, without further ado. Let's get to it. I think that this is sort of like, you know, when a sitcom does a musical episode sort of out of nowhere and it's delightful and fun and totally different. That's where we are right now. So let's get on with the show. Here we go. Hi, it's Radhika Jones, editor-in-chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. Hey, how was the jam? Wonderful. What are you rehearsing for? The Late Show. Is that The Late Show with Stephen Colbert? Yep, The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. What are you playing tonight? I don't even know what we're playing yet. <laughs> I probably will decide in the moment that I play it. I was looking, at, maybe it was on Twitter, you responded to somebody's asking about a song you played one night, and it was Such Sweet Thunder yes. by Duke Ellington. Yep. Duke. You know, that was actually Billy Strayhorn, his compatriot, the one who he said 
they had their brain waves in each other's heads. Wow. Yeah, yeah that was him. So allow me to welcome you formally, John Batiste, to Inside the Hive. It's so great to have you here. Congratulations on your Golden Globe for your work on the Pixar film Soul and two Grammy nominations. Thank you. Thank you so much. Nominated for two Grammys. One is uh, Chronology of a Dream, which is uh, live at the Village Vanguard. That's right. And uh, one for Meditations is a collaboration with Corey Wong, on it, who plays a guitar. Beautiful record. Very different records. Kind of wonderful to get nominated for two extremely different sounding records. Yeah, the music to me is all about how you feel. And every day we go through different emotional phases and being able to capture that in these these musical expressions is a is a very very wonderful thing to be acknowledged for i'm so grateful yeah when i listened to the village vanguard record that you made you know we are not able to be in a live music setting this year mm -hmm. like that and so if it's both everything you wish you could be in and then you actually are in it when you're listening to it but it made me think uh, it's got to be Difficult for a guy like you who likes to play live and likes to be in front of people and do your thing not to have been able to do that in the last year. Well, you know, I find energy from being live and playing for people and being amongst folks. And I also find a great deal of energy from being alone. And I think that's really been the silver lining, if there's any way of calling it that, of this pandemic. We have to improvise. Improvising is what we're doing. That's right. Oh, man, there's that little tinkle that the Duke does. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I loved reading that when you made the uh, Music for Soul Pixar film, mm. that they brought in like 80 GoPro cameras to aim at your playing so they could make the animated version. And mm -hmm. watching that movie with my kids, which was a beautiful thing, it was so evident that they did it right. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. yeah, it was really beautiful looking. And I, you know, obviously it must have been pretty wild for you to look at, to see the spirit of your hands turned into that. Well, that embodiment in the character is very, very interesting to see that they could pull it off mutually, yeah. obviously. But just beyond that, the the essence of a person being in a character, that's powerful stuff to be able to do. It's really a craft. Yeah, just the whole spirit of the point of the movie about jazzing mm. in your life is something that I think a lot of people could probably relate to. You know, we're all sort of um, in an improvisatory mode in the last year. And, you know, your new record that you have coming out, We Are, seems like um, I was listening to, I've been listening to it for the last week. It's fantastic. And it really seemed designed for these times. And... uh in that it's just full of kind of joy, optimism, but also consciousness and a sense of uh, trying to find out who you are in this like uncertain time, you know? Mm. And for you, especially, it's really interesting because, you know, you know, you come from the jazz world and New Orleans world, but you're really like pushing out into other sounds and reaching out to a wider audience mm. in a way that seems necessary, you know, trying to find some connection Mm. in your sound as well yes sound is important that's everything man the sound yeah. that's who we are the album starts with the song called adulthood and maybe you could talk to me a little bit about the sequencing of this record and how you thought of it because i've read somewhere that it's been long in the making right and the, and the events of the last year kind of catalyzed it but it's sort of biographical in some ways. It's a little bit exploring who your own growth and you're turning into a man and coming aware of who you are, right? Yes, the album is, uh, it started in 2019, August 2019. Spent 2014 into 2019 thinking about it, listening to things, writing things, painting, dancing, all these different ways of experimenting with what this sound would be. And then in 2019, I spent six days in my dressing room building the blueprint of it with a few different creatives. And we started doing these things where, you know, I'd have an idea, someone else have an idea. We put it all together. 
and I would leave and I would go on set and I would record something, film something. I was working on the score for Soul. I was doing a play about Jean-Michel Basquiat. I was doing all these different things at the same time. And I would have people coming in, food deliveries coming in, the drum set set up in the shower, piano set up in there, the microphone set up in there. Around the clock for six days, we did the blueprint of the record. And then for nine months, it was the build out of that blueprint and adding songs, collaborating with over 200 musicians and black icons, you know, Quincy Jones, the great Mavis Staples, the author, novelist Zadie Smith, so many people, James Gadsden, legendary drummer, another legendary drummer, Steve Jordan. I mean, you know, folks who are really, really impactful on my life and just on the history and trajectory of black music and black culture. And the real goal was over the nine months leading into the, the culmination of this album being complete. Um, it was to be meticulous about how I was putting these sounds together because I don't really believe in genres, you know. Genres are just these constructs that we've created to sell music to people. And really, music comes from communities and it comes from life experience and it comes from individuals and there's no name for it. So I guess I would call the genre of this album, it, it's just black pop music going back into the past and taking things like a musical archaeologist digging up sounds of folk music, sounds of jazz, sounds of blues, sounds of spirituals and gospel music, sounds of R&B, and making them anew. And that's really the whole idea behind what I was doing. As a person, obviously, as a Black artist from the South, but also just as a person, as a human being, identity is important. It's not about exclusion. It's just about defining identity under the umbrella of being a human being. Genre really reduces that. It's very reductive to call something a genre of something. Yeah. Well, back to Duke Ellington, his famous quote, you know, there's two kinds of music, the good kind and the other kind. That's it. And, and you got a song on here. It's one of my favorites, actually, on the record, Show Me the Way, which sort of touches on all these different influences and people that you love. From Ella Fitzgerald, Billie Holiday, Wu-Tang Clan, Beatles, and you have this wonderful line, uh, and Thelonious on the phone with us. Zadie Smith's on that too. What what is she doing on that on that song? We sing a lot of uh, of duets together, and uh, her and Lady Rizzo, a friend of ours, the three of us would jump on Zoom throughout this pandemic. A few times we've gotten a chance to do that and sing songs and play. And you know, there's a lag on Zoom, but we're able to overcome it if we have good internet connection, good enough. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's a it's a way for us to connect and to kind of have a, a a moment of of relief and the communal aspect of singing. And that just sort of bled over into the creation of this album. We were doing that at the time that I was finishing the album up because I finished the album up at the height of the first wave of the pandemic and the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter protests, which I was a leader of in New York City. Um, right. So, you know, there was all this stuff that's going on that filtered into the record. And those singing sessions with Zadie was one of those things that filtered into the record. Um, yeah. So it was, it, it's, it's all, you know, there, I, I said there are 200 plus musicians that I worked with on this record, but every single one of them, and it's not just musicians, it's writers, engineers, all these people, and, and all of the people, every one of them has some level of great significance in my life, in my coming of age to being 33 when I made this record. Um, yeah. I can tell you a story that significantly shaped me that involves um, each one of these people that I, I collaborated with on this record. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about the protests last summer. You can really feel that theme in this album. It's across a lot of different songs, obviously had a huge impact on you and it gave you, uh, you know, obviously some purpose in kind of, you know, focusing the spirit of some of these songs. And 
How did that come about that you decided, you know, you in the past had sort of led these like, you know, great street music marches, you know, these love riots, mm-hmm. as you described them. Mm-hmm. But now you're taking it into a new venue with a different purpose and a different vibe. Like maybe you can just take me into the moment where you're like, you decided I'm going to do this, you know, and what, what you were feeling at that time. Well, I think that as people, we have to hold ourselves accountable to the things that we profess to believe. And oftentimes artists who have this public platform and have a stage to present their values through their work profess to be one way or the other. But then when it comes to putting themselves to the test in the moment of trial, they don't show up. And as someone who has been doing love riots, as you say, these musical processionals that we've become known for around New York and then eventually going around the world and bringing love, joy and community with us through musical virtuosity always, but mainly being a vehicle, the band Stay Human being this vehicle for merriment and joy and love and community. To really look at that as my philosophy for the last 10 years and then for a time when the world needs that more than ever and the city that I'm in needs that more than ever to not show up and to have all these things going on and I'm looking at the news and I'm not seeing musicians, I'm not seeing artists, I'm not seeing people show up who are the joy bringers and the truth tellers and professing to be these things. I didn't have to think about it. It was just a a, a test of my mettle. Am I really about what I say I'm about? And if I am, then I would be out there, even though obviously I have all these things on the line, you know, Um, at the time we didn't know where the chips would fall in terms of, you know, where the big networks and where all of the big companies would fall on the side of this argument, uh, this, this, this political um, yeah. discussion, if, <laughs> if you want to yeah. that, but being a part of a CBS show and having all these things happening in my, my life and being connected to all these entities. Um, and also the, the, the danger of going out there in, t- in the first wave of the pandemic and the police brutality that happened the day before we went out there in the same spot that we started our march. You know, all these things, in hindsight, were very, very, very dangerous for me on a number of levels. Um, But I'm glad that I didn't actually think it through that much. It was more just, am I about what I've said I've been about for the last decade as an artist? And if I am, then I would be out there. And and I was out there. Yeah. Yeah, it was an uncertain time. I mean, did you feel like you had to, like, check in with, the late show and tell them you were doing this? Was it a, a feeling like I'm taking a risk here? It was a risk. I didn't, I, it was not really time to think or check in with anyone in particular, because you know, these things, as you remember, happened so rapidly. Uh, yeah. George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, the Amy Cooper incident in Central Park, all of the, the, the pandemic and the ravishing of the lower class communities. And the political discourse that had been toxic for the last four years leading up to that, so much of what we had been dealing with in terms of the police brutality and corrupt policing in inner cities, and that compounding upon itself into a moment of protest around the world, um, I, I didn't think that it was something that was going to slow down even at that moment. And it was just really a choice in the moment, the day of, the night before, really, to say, you know, are we going to put this put this together and bring some of what it is that we do to the table to help point to truth and light? You have a song on this album, it's called Cry, and the lyrics are, how are you going to fight? Who will you fight to make it all right? And why sometimes does it feel like all I want to do is cry? That really hit me. I was I was listening to that just this afternoon and I was like, wow, that's really the heart of it right there, right? That's part of our humanity. You know, I think we get caught up in these ideas of, of race and these ideas of, of uh, what we are in our identity. 
is really something much more profound and, and, and it's shared. If you study the human genome, we're 99.9% the same. Yeah. And, and, and this idea that we can cry together and we can understand the pain that black people have gone through collectively without losing our identity is, is truly something that we were out there trying to speak to. We're saying these names, George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, we're saying Black Lives Matter, we're saying all these things as an affirmation of the humanity that we all share, that is the truth of who we are, that is not always reflected in the actions and in the policies that govern us. And it's just a simple thing if you look at it for what it is. We're all human beings and we're actually more alike than we are different. And this struggle that we're dealing with is not as much about race as it is about money and power. Mm -hmm. so the money and the power are more the, the, the thing that is pulling us apart. And at times it's so above our head and above our level of resource that it feels like all you want to do sometime is cry for the struggle of the immigrant, for the wrongful imprisonment, for the loss of the innocence. That's the lyrics. You see, that's what we're dealing with. Listening to this record, you know, you'll have to forgive me before all of this happened. And before I heard this record, I always thought of you as a conscious person, but I didn't think you as political per se. You know, you're on The Late Show. It's sort of got a universal appeal. What's been your personal experience of racism? I mean, you're from the South. You're from New Orleans. You come to New York. You've, you've been around the world. But what, what's been your personal experience of it in this country? I find that racism is something that can be experienced by just living as a black person. And it's not necessarily something that I consider myself to be a victim of. I don't think of myself as a victim at all, but I do think that racism is the perception of somebody based upon their race and not by their character. And that has happened to me many times simply by being someone who is in a cultural milieu that is outside of that which the people who inhabit that space are used to. And what that does is it creates these, these moments of assessment of who you are based upon a lack of information. Um, as, a, as a black kid, 17 years old at Juilliard, 16, 17, going to the Carnegie Hall or going into X venue trying to present my composition, my symphony. They've never seen a kid like me before that wants to do this. or They've never seen somebody who talks like me or has this, the, the swag that I have or the, the way that I am is not something that they're used to. And the media has presented them with portrayals of black people that are very limited. And the media yeah. has presented them with these derogatory perceptions of black people, I will say. And then that is coupled with their lack of meaningful relationships with people like me in their formative years. So if you don't have any of these things in your experience, you, you'll perceive me based on a perception of race and a perception of class. And that to me is a daily occurrence for a non-famous black person. Because if I'm famous and I'm black, then you've seen me on television, I heard my records and you know what I'm about, and you know that I have some deal of money or some deal of success or wealth, so you understand the class and race space that I inhabit from a different perspective than what most of my life before being famous and having money was. So I, it's not even really an occurrence. Obviously, I've been called the N-word. I've been called many things. I've, been, um, I've experienced that explicit racism, but it's nowhere near what our ancestors and my, my grandfather, who was a protest, is an activist. It is it, nowhere near what they experience on a regular basis. Although at times it's just as intense as we saw with George Floyd and Breonna. Oh, yeah. But it's a daily occurrence, I'll say. Well, let's let's talk about. Your grandfather, you just mentioned, you've got a 
a song that on the album called Boyhood, and you're sort of talking about your memories of growing up, um, which is really a sweet song. It's not like a, it's not as a, maybe a heavy and emotional, uh, not bearing the same weight as like cry, but you come from this like family, the Batiste family in New Orleans, famous music family. And I've heard the name before. I watched Treme, right? Um, Wendell Pierce, fantastic actor playing a Batiste, right? In that, in that TV show. But a lot of people don't know about this family. And maybe you can tell me a little bit about what's the sort of uh, genealogy of the Batiste family in, in Louisiana. And, and then tell me about your grandfather. So like what, who was the first musical Batiste that was known, for instance? So my grandfather, who was on the record, is actually my mother's father, David Gaucher, who's an elder in the AME church and is someone who has been an activist since the time of the Memphis sanitation strike during the Martin Luther King Jr. era. Dr. Martin Luther King was basically speaking for the rights of black sanitation workers. And at this time, my grandfather was the head of the hotel workers union in New Orleans. Um, and as, as well as the postal workers union at some, sometime after that, around that time, um, and he, 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 he's also someone who fought for our country. And everyone in my family going back four or five generations, I mean, even further, actually, if I think about it, has fought in every war that this country has had. Um, so speaking about my lineage and understanding that, we also come from a line of, of farmers on both sides of my family. And um, black farmers, farm families in, uh, in the South, in Georgia, Clayton County, Georgia, and then to uh, in Mississippi, as well as obviously Louisiana. Um, so there's that in my lineage. There's also the Creole Louisiana genetic code, which I learned from Henry Louis Gates uh, when, <laughs> on this show. Uh, he, he, um, yeah. But um, which means that, you know, there's a diversity to our, our, our line, our bloodline. And there's a cultural diversity that I think is, um, is truly American. And I think about my family as being a truly exemplar of what it means to be an American. Um, to have somebody in my line, seven lines before me that's just come out of slavery and reconstruction. And then for me to be in New York City in the position I am in society and to have the opportunities that I have, that's the American dream manifest. Um, yeah. So so I, I just find that um, we have so much culture embedded in my family. And obviously the Baptiste side of the family has many different musical manifestations. My father was my first musical mentor. The late great Alvin Baptiste was an uh, avant-garde clarinetist who played with Ray Charles as well. Um, started a band with Ellis Marsalis, brought avant-garde and contemporary jazz to the New Orleans scene. Harold Baptiste, producer, extraordinaire, um, Russell Batiste, funky meters, drummer, so many different styles of music. It, 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 there actually is a movie in there that I should make at some point. <laughs> yeah. Well, then tell me what it was like growing up in your house as a kid. I mean, you, you're surrounded by lots of music. I mean, yes. what, what, what would we have heard in the Batiste living room, you know, uh, let's say 30 years ago, when you were a kid, man. So, like, uh, was it? Grandma's hands clapped in church on Sunday morning. Grandma's hands played the tambourine so well. That would play all the time. That. Donnie Hathaway, Professor Longhair and James Booker, um, Clarence Carter, many, many styles of black social music, music that you hear at cookouts, music that you would hear in um, social gatherings in New Orleans and, and just contemporary black social music. And that would be playing a lot in, in the house. And also I would experience that in person, you know, there were many ways that I, I was exposed to music 
as a performer at an early age, I would sing and dance and, 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 um, and, you know, my father and his brothers, they had the, the, the band together that would play back in the Chitlin circuit days with a lot of the, uh, R and B and blues performers talking about King Floyd, Jackie Wilson, um, you know, stuff that you would see in a juke joint on a movie. Um, they have right. stories like that. So, you know, I, I would hear the stories. I would see the music. I would hear the music on, on recordings, obviously, in the house. And um, eventually I would be playing in clubs way before I was old enough to be actually in the club. You know, I would yeah. I'd be, I'd be playing in the Maple Leaf Bar, for instance, you know, back when I was um, a, a, a preteen. And then by the time I was 13, 14, Trombone Shorty and I started a band and we would play in the Maple Leaf Bar every Tuesday or Wednesday night. And this would be after we go to school, we go walk to the Maple Leaf on Oak Street and uh, <laughs> play the gig until 1 a.m., go back home and, and uh, get up for school in the morning. So, you know, wow. th- that's what it was like growing up for me. What would we have heard in the Maple Leaf? I mean, everything from the New Orleans canon. You talk about stuff that we all learned. But then we started really composing our own music by the time I was 15, I started leading my own bands. And my first record was when I was 17, entitled Times in New Orleans, that kind of captures the kind of original yeah. music that I was writing at the time, which, you know, yeah. it was original music that was rooted in this kind of Afro-Caribbean sound, you know, like, so, and, and um, or, or uh, we have one, uh, Like things like themes like that, I would write in class or I would write on the way to the gig or we'd even play stuff and it would spontaneously happen on the on the performance stage where we would make music on the spot. But it would it would mainly be us trying to explore our voice with all of the sounds and rhythms of what we had heard growing up, trying to find our voice in that. And then when you're in high school, I see you and Stephen Colbert made a great little video series where you guys went down to New Orleans and you sort of took them on the tour, you know, and you, we met the teacher that was your piano teacher in high school, right? Who yes. kind of probably expanded your horizons probably as wide as they could go at that time, right? You know, when you're 17, 18, before you go to Juilliard, what did you think of yourself as wanting to be musically? Like, what were you into? I was into jazz, in particular, jazz that was very, very trio-oriented. Um, when I say trio, you think about the the great jazz trios, Ahmad Jamal, Bill Evans, John Lewis, uh, the trio pianists who would create compositions and arrangements, Oscar Peterson, you know, just creating these kind of worlds between the piano, the bass, and the drums. And I was very interested in going to New York and pursuing that. And trying to yeah. be a, um, trying to make the best jazz trio that I could, and that eventually evolved into being a band that had a front line of horn players. Then it eventually evolved into being a big band, and then it eventually evolved into a band that I called the social music band, which was the idea that genres doesn't exist, and that was the first idea that I had about bringing Stay Human to the to the forefront. And then I crafted Stay Human, and then the band has gone through seven evolutions into what it's become. You know, one of the facts that I saw in an interview that really kind of it was interesting to me is when you got to Juilliard, of course, New York was like a big, you know, uh, education, right? You're going to get so many more influences. But you told somebody that uh, before you went uptown to Cleopatra's Needle to to do a jam session, maybe with Roy Hargrove or somebody that you were getting to know or meet, that you had never heard Monk before. You had never really listened to Monk deeply yet. And, um, but he becomes kind of like a major touchstone for you, right? Definitely. Thelonious Monk is one of the greatest musicians of the world's history. And he's one of the ones who is still underrated by my account because he really did change the sound of the piano. And it's very difficult to describe it, but when you hear it, it's so identifiable that you can't replicate it 
and no one has really been able to replicate it. Um, which, which I find to be really fascinating because the piano is such, you know, it's an inanimate object and everybody who plays it sounds different. And somehow he sounds the most unique, um, out of, out of most people who've ever played, but coupled with that, He's got a compositional genius and a logic to what he's doing, both as an improviser and as a composer. That struck me when I was, you know, 18 or 19, whenever at this jam session, I I, um, I heard somebody playing his music. And at the time, you know, I'd heard Monk. I've obviously I'd heard a Monk all of my 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 time studying jazz in high school and, and all the things that I'd done prior to being in New York. Obviously, Monk had come up, and I knew some of his songs. I, I knew his compositions, like Straight No Chaser. But but yeah. I didn't really know. I didn't really right. hear it. I heard it, but I didn't have ears to hear it. Sometimes you sometimes you hear something, and it's before you are ready to receive it. Yeah. And at this night in particular, for whatever reason. Hearing evidence, the song that they were playing is entitled Evidence. And hearing that song, it opened my ear in a way that was so profound that it changed my whole musical scope in that moment. Because the, the other part of the context that I'll give you is that I was working on something that resembled the type of logic and rhyme of Monk's phrasing. And unbeknownst to me, he had already developed that way of phrasing and way of rhyming musically before I had thought of it. And I thought of it naturally, but I didn't know that it already existed in the world that was had been developed. Um, so when I heard that in the in the time that I was trying to develop this thing, it was so striking that I was like, wait, what is that? That's what I want. That's that's <laughs> That's that's yeah. the thing. That's that's what I want to go. That's why I want to. Can you show us? Can you show us what that sounds like? So it's kind of you know, say. So that's the that's the melody. One, two, three, one, three, four. Uh. Now that's the melody, and it's got all of the space in it that he's implying what the harmony is. Now, if I was to really play what the harmony is clearly so you could know exactly what the harmony is without guessing it, it would be. Now, the implication of the harmony is what struck me. The idea that this space is like a question. Huh? That's right. <laughs> what you say? Uh-huh. Then? Okay. Yeah. So it's, yeah. it's 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 a way of giving your ears something to grab onto, but just enough that you're holding on for what the next thing is. And then when you hear the next thing, then that adds to the narrative of the first thing. And then you can just keep that logic of call and response and tension and release or tension and more tension and more tension and release or release, release, release tension. It could be, it's, it's, it's infinite. You can just keep right. going for, for forever. Wow. And he's a very percussive player too. And you've played the drums, right? And you know, the value of like that to piano playing actually, because it's really a percussive instrument in some ways. Right. Yeah. And he gets he gets that. So that's the um jazz nerd portion of our interview. I just but I had to get that in there because I love talking about Monk and Duke Ellington. And thanks for indulging me on that. Um No, of course. It's it's a very it's a very percussive it's it's just a very black way of playing. Like classical music I love obviously, but but I think that hearing that kind of mastery and and logic with such a, a percussive black sound that was more akin to where I was coming from anyway, growing up playing on like out of tune pianos and stuff like that and playing in clubs yeah. and bars. I really, right. it, it resonates with me because that was where I was naturally coming from. And the stride and the sort of, yeah, the uh, kind of uh, rent party jamming style, but taken to an art form. Yes. And I don't know if you got that record I sent you. 
I did, man. This record is a gift of gifts because this is one of my favorite albums of all time. I'd actually put it in the top 10 of my favorite albums of all time. I'm so pleased to hear that. And I just had a feeling that that might be true. And we're talking about Duke Ellington's piano reflections. I thought about that. It's like a 1953 recording of him playing just in a trio and solo setting, but it's such a deep cut. It's so fantastic of a vision of what how great Duke Ellington is as a piano player. Yeah, he's got a, a way of, of, of playing, you know, what do you think about... Uh... Man, reflections in D or melancholia, all of them. Yeah. There are some meditations on the record that feel so special when you immerse yourself into them that yeah. it's a gift to your soul if you if you let it happen. You got to just put the record on and just immerse yourself into it. Yeah. Well, I have to say, in the last uh, in the last year, which everybody knows has been a difficult year. It's a record that can is like a bomb, you know. Mm. You listen to that record and you can get into a, a headspace and it feels like you're having a, a private sesh with, with the Duke, which is a very magical thing. Yes, yes. Duke Ellington I discovered when I was in the library and I was looking for different recordings to be inspired by. I wanted to find something that would inspire me and give me uh, some inspiration as a young student, musician. I must have been 15 or so, and I picked up a Duke Ellington album that was him live at Newport, and he was smiling on the cover, and I remember he had on a uh, uh, either a tweed jacket or a seersucker blazer or something like that, something sophisticated-looking yeah. situation where I was just um, really – drawn to the the cover of the album with him and this font, the Newport. I never heard of Newport. What is Newport Jazz Festival live? And it was a live record and it was the blazer and everything was really, really working in a way that was uh, drawing me in. And I, I picked the record up, listened to it. Has this obviously for jazz aficionados, they know this famous solo that is uh, it's like a 20 minute track it's a blues solo that goes for for several choruses and it just keeps getting hotter and hotter and hotter. It's burning, burning through the speakers by his saxophonist, Paul Gonzalez, yeah. on diminuendo and crescendo in blue. And, you know, that was the first real experience that I had with Duke, listening to that album. And, of course, over the years, George Ween, who founded the Newport Jazz Festival, and uh, the impresario icon, Papa George, you know, I've become yeah. friends with George and a mentor um, just in this business, he's been a mentor for me. Um, you know, I've always been a part of the Newport festivals in some way since 2012, 2013. So, you know, full circle, my discovery of Duke and meeting people who knew him like George and talking about his life and stories that they can tell about him and his daughter, Mercedes, and different folks who I've had the honor of um, getting to know since that first library experience. Yeah. has deepened my understanding of who he was. Um, there's a great book I recommend for people to listen if you want to know about Duke. Um, there's a lot of a lot of great recordings, obviously, but if you read this book by Stanley Dance, who followed Duke around for many years, yeah. um, and um, Duke and, um, and and Stanley have have a uh, it's a great book where he's, he, he you get to hear Duke's voice. I think you got to hear Duke yeah. talk. That's right. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And Stanley Dance was sort of his, uh, you know, Boswell, or you know, he he was his. He he wrote all of his his words down, and then it's all in the voice of Duke. And uh, it's all in Duke's voice, and it feels like you're hanging with Duke. That's right. And that's special. That's a special place to be. Uh, just a little aside that you'll appreciate. The editor of Vanity Fair. Radika Jones. Yes, yes. Her oh, father was Bob Jones, right? 
Bob Jones. Yes, yes. I, <laughs> it is Bob Jones. <laughs> it's Bob Jones. Yes, yes. Radika's incredible. She's so elegant and amazing. And I, I've run into her sister actually at the Jazz Festival in New Orleans um, a lot of times. But, but um, oh, just before we go, the, the World of Duke Ellington is the name of the book. I remember now. That's but, right. But Radika is is so special, you know. I love I love Bob obviously as well, and I think that we we really have this cool thing going on right now in culture that Vanity Fair is really positioned well to take advantage of, which is the kind of fashion, music, cosmopolitan aspect of life and the way that those things have always been central to each other. And you think about jazz and black music and what that really means. Um, what that means culturally from a cultural perspective and how to speak to that. You know, there's a lot of cool things that can be done in this time. Well, I think that you, uh, in your career and in your the platform you have on The Late Show, it's really one of the biggest platforms for jazz in the in the country. And it's like, a, in a way, you're an ambassador for for it. And let's be honest, you know, jazz is not something everybody can wrap their heads around. It can intimidate some people or they don't totally get it. And it's like a whole, you know, um, but the ways in which you, uh, on your new album, for instance, and, and some of the other records you made are able to kind of connect it more broadly, you know, break out of the genre and to the degree the genre matters anymore, right? That's a way to like connect people with it. And and it also, though, I think it's really the time for people to listen to this music really is now more than ever because of the kind of, uh, there's so much diversity in jazz culture. There's so much more, it, it's got the spirit of improvisation that we're all can relate to right now. It's like, how do you, respond to somebody else in a way that's, um, you know, uh, simpatico and unifying and hits another note or a chord that has a, a, a bigger social effect, right? And I think that's what you're about, right? Definitely, definitely. Giving people something that means something. Yeah, absolutely. And just as an aside, we were talking about Radika's father. She's going to be amused that we're talking about her on this podcast so much. But her father was managed uh-huh. Duke Ellington's tours in the late 60s and the early 70s. And the, the famous Duke Ellington Sacred Concert. Mm-hmm. Of course, her father was there. So was her mother. And uh, I've talked to them and they've got amazing stories about that. Um, I would love to hear that because those, those days were, that was the last decade of his creative output. Those sacred concerts and that sacred music. And he was really, really in a space where there's this, just this lionized figure musically. Um, And listening to him speak in that time, it was just such a potent clarity that he had with a, a, a very acute way of expressing complex things and ideas. And he had condensed it to such a clarity at that point in his life. It was very, very special, I imagine, to be a part of that. Absolutely. We were talking about your time in New York. You yes. discovered Monk, you were at this jam session at Cleopatra's Needle, and you, but around this time, you got to know Roy Hargrove, or you got interested in his music, and he was doing something that really, in some ways, is a model for you, in that he was expanding jazz into other forms right? Uh, in the nineties into like hip hop and neo soul and other things that you, that you're interested in. Yes. Yes. Roy was somebody who I listened to on recordings, D'Angelo's voodoo, Erica Badu, um, many, many different recordings outside of his own. And then of course he had his own recordings with the quintets, jazz music. And then he had the RH factor, which was, which was a fusion of, of many different flavors Neo soul. Um, it was just the, the the timing in the early 2000s was really ripe for a, a reinterpretation of soul and hip hop with jazz and funk and fusion elements. And I listened to a lot of those recordings. I listened to many things during that time that um, stuck with me. I remember buying several stacks of CDs every other week and just 
downloading all the information, <laughs> the liner note information, the musical information, lyrical information, all the stuff, you know, that I could. Led Zeppelin records I remember getting. I remember getting the um the the greatest hits of of many artists who I just didn't even know anything about, but I would look at the cover and I'd want to hear it. Bjork being one of them. Then I ended up buying all her records. Vespertine, one of my favorites of hers. Um, Radiohead at the time. The Michael Jackson records, Dangerous, was the first one that I bought. That cover was, well, him, uh, the kind of the circus-looking thing with the eyes. Um, so much. Uh, Common, like Water for Chocolate, which Roy Hargrove is also on. Hearing Jay Dilla, hearing all that music. So you got to imagine that this is around the time that I'm also studying classical music. I'm also playing video games every single day and music from the video games, um, Yoko Shimimura, the Capcom games and um, Squaresoft games, Final Fantasy VII, the soundtrack by Nobu Imatsu. So you got all of these Japanese video game composers uh, influencing me as well as the Neo Soul and then the classical music that I'm studying and then the jazz and all the stuff that I'm playing in the clubs at that time which is, you know, a mix of all types of different music. Mus musicians from Cuba coming to New Orleans, musicians from the Caribbean, New Orleans musicians who are playing traditional music, the younger musicians, my peers, and and um, and, and, and all the musicians coming up playing stuff that's a fusion of all the stuff we're hearing on the radio, which is like the Hot Boys, Master P, um, No Limit. You know, like Southern Rap had this huge explosion at the time. Bounce music, which has mainly been indigenous to New Orleans up until recently. Um, and then we have all of our cultural music of New Orleans. So you you can just imagine this explosion of, of um, musical influences and sounds and rhythms that at that time when I was just getting into my real intense study of, of, um, of music, I had all these things that I was drawing from. Wow. So like, uh, and you, you know, thinking about the before and after of all that absorb, absorbing all that music, you know, you know, you're sort of setting yourself up to be able to go in any direction. And, and I also wonder like how hearing like a Radiohead record or a Jay Dilla album, I mean, there are phrases and ideas that you can, you know, translate back into jazz, right? I mean, you could go in all different directions from there. I mean... But when you first made your first record, it was a pretty pure jazz record, uh, the live album uh, at the Art Museum. And the first, I, th I think about that record because the first song is very monkish. It's got a real monk feel to it. And it's sort of like your first declaration, uh, you know, when you're, when you're showing your chops off is like, is that monk spirit, right? Can you play a, a, a little section of that possibly? Oh, yeah. Uh, the yeah, yes, that's right, that's right. Remind me of the name of that record. Sumira, and that's called Live at Live in New York at the Rubin Museum. Yeah. John Batiste Trio, Jonathan Batiste Trio, Philip King, Joe Saylor. We yeah. recorded that record in um 2005 2006 somewhere around there yeah i was 19 and that was um wow you know i think that when you're studying something as a musician you get immersed in it but as as you get older you realize that this idea of genre is a construct that kind of limits your creative expression and your flow so you know if i were making a record of what i actually was influenced by in its entirety, in the fullness of it, it would have had many different sounds of music and different styles of things in there. But because I was so immersed into Thelonious Monk at the time, into jazz at the time, and believing that you had to adhere to these rules of genre, I kind of limited the scope of what the record was. And that's not to say that it's um, a bad thing, because I think that if that's your choice as an artist, then that's great because it's it's uh, empowered. But I think when you think that you have to limit your choices, that's when it becomes problematic because you don't know what could have been with your music and with your development. 
I think this latest album that I made is the first time that I've really been able to make a record that encompasses full scope of or, or a broader scope of who I am as an artist and what my my color palette is. If you were to liken it to a painter, you know, yeah. if you if you think you're just making a hip hop record or just making a jazz record and you and, and those colors are, are, are red and black and you only use red and black, then you're limited. Versus if you're just making a human record of human experiences and your cultural understanding and your scope and your vision and whatever comes out, comes out, then you have so many colors at your disposal. Well, you just said exactly what I had been trying to say. So thank you. And it has to do with all those things you were picking up in the stacks of CDs, right? And now it's sort of like you're finally kind of like um, getting that painting together from all those different influences. And um Clearly one of them is like uh, Stevie Wonder is very strong in this thing. And I think of him, interestingly, because I feel like in the 70s, he was making music similar to what you're, the way that that you're doing it. And, and it kind of like very personal, do playing every instrument when he could, but, you know, very singular vision, right? Yes, yes. He's a true artist. You know, he was somebody who I think is... Um... You know, he calls me on my birthday every year. The last four or five years, he calls me on my birthday. And it's really a great conversation every time because it's one of those um, intention-setting conversations. It's like a, a, a setting you up for the next year, check-in, yeah. kind of set your focus in a way that I love that. That's in my life. And, and he's somebody in my life that I can really, you know, for years I listened to his music and was enamored. But now to know him, the person, it's great. When was the last time you had one of those conversations? Last <laughs> last birthday. <laughs> yeah. Um, November 11th, he uh he called me. And and it's really really a um a a a, a monumental thing to have the respect of people like Stevie Wonder and Quincy Jones and Mavis Staples. To me those are the people that matter the most because those are the artists, you know, like if Duke were alive, those are the people who it's only a handful of people who I think when they speak and when they give you any feedback is almost inalienable. You just got to accept it. It's, you got to listen to it. That's it. Yeah. Boom. From the mountain. Yeah. What was the break? Was there a breakthrough for you in terms of, realizing that you could just bust out of all these genres and do this album? I think it's a breakthrough that happened over the course of a decade. Yeah. So <laughs> I don't necessarily see it as a breakthrough, more just something that I've always strived to, to do. Everybody wants to do that. Everybody wants to freely express who they are without any sort of thing, ideology, norm, or expectation tethering them to the floor. They want to be able to fly. And I think to fly as an artist is to create something that exists purely and authentically from your experience and nothing else could be in its place because it's it's directly from the source. And that's why we don't want to be derivative, not because we don't have influences. Obviously, everyone has influences, but to derive something from something else and for it to be able to be replaced by that thing or to be a second rate version of that thing or to be another version of that thing just feels more like a a trade that belongs in an assembly line and not art. Yeah. Well, it's hard to do because of just the music business. Right. And I'm sure one of the breakthroughs for you, I know you talked about, you'd been thinking about this record since 2014, at least, Getting onto the Late Show, having this bigger platform, having kind of a wider audience to address, you know, probably helped because if you're just in jazz, it can be a very small audience, right? And they know what they want to hear, right? And so here you have this much wider audience and you can kind of be a, a, a more, um, you know, uh, you have a wider spectrum of conversation, Right. That's what all these different it allows you to use all these different influences you're talking about. Yeah, I think that when you are in a jazz context or in whatever we call jazz today, because it's not really a real thing. Right. Um, but I think that when you're in a space, 
of what we call the jazz world, which is the infrastructure of clubs and festivals and radio stations and things like that, that I have great respect for, but I do have a lot of critique of, which is part of the reason why my path has been what it is. I've always wanted to exist outside of what was prescribed available to us. Um, and I was always wanted to express things that I felt were not really always welcome in the space of that infrastructure and give it to people who I felt like needed it more than the people who were aware of the jazz world. That's why we ended up playing in street corners and in subways. And that's why we ended up playing in so many different types of venues from, you know, concert halls to clubs to amphitheaters to high school gymnasiums, all of the ways that it used to be where the music that people played wasn't relegated to a small network of clubs and that's it. And there's a way to play and there's a way to dress and there's a way to be and only a few outliers and even the outliers still adhere to the dogma that seems to tether you to a specific mode of artistic expression. Yeah. And I don't really, I don't buy into anything like that because I don't think human beings are like that. I think I read somewhere that you have on the horizon beyond this album, which is, you know, like a pop soul record, something symphonic also that you're working on, like, a, you know, a large scale composition of some kind. Can you tell me about it? Yes. It's the idea that I have of bringing the, idea of social music, which is all music that has existed as ritual music or, or, or um, communal music. So, you know, every culture has had some form of indigenous music, Native Americans, Black Indians in New Orleans, all of the ways that people have connected in community via music, what would that look like in a symphonic space in the year 2022? Um, so thinking about all of that, I decided to create this piece that's called the American Symphony. And it has four different ensembles. One is a symphony orchestra. The other is a marching band. The other is a chorus. And then the, the fourth ensemble is what I consider to be a new age rhythm section and new age meaning it has elements both of the traditional rhythm section of guitar bass drums and piano as well as technological elements that range from sampling and and different forms of sound design and enhancement wow. so it, it's um several musicians playing this really rich really dense four movement piece that is kind of a, um, it's kind of a report of where we are musically. Wow. That sounds insanely ambitious. How long have you been working on that? Oh, wow. I've been working on it in my mind for a long time. Yeah. And actually in reality, maybe the last couple of years, we played a few of the movements in reductive, kind of like a, a reduced orchestral setup was that last year a year and a half ago before covid yeah it's really a a, a powerful piece to make manifest yeah, I, really I can imagine manifest yeah well i can't wait to hear that when when can we roughly expect to see that emerge in the world it'll premiere at carnegie hall in 2022 and that will be special as a part of my residency there yeah. Ah, so, wow. That's something to look forward to. I can't wait. Yes, indeed. And uh, in the spirit of of Duke Ellington, once again, you know, creating suites and hybridizing American black jazz with classical, and it's more of what you're about, right? That's right. So thank you for coming on Inside the Hive. I'm really honored that you... Uh, chose to come on here just to close us out here any chance you can play us a little something uh maybe just whatever you've been playing lately at home like what do you what are you just uh, jamming around on nowadays let's see i was just playing the uh from the record 
that's our program this week. I'd like to thank John Batiste for coming on Inside the Hive this week. Thank you to my co-host Emily Jane Fox, producer Brett Fuchs, the people at Cadence 13 who helped make this happen. And if you enjoyed what you heard today, please hit subscribe. Go to Apple or Radio.com, wherever you get your podcasts, and subscribe. Please support our sponsors the way they support this program. And we'll see you next week. Thank you.